Blog Talk Radio. Everybody, it's your girl Cy Brown. I am so glad you're joining me today. We are going to spend another great few moments, time, whatever you want to call it, together, learning and growing so we can absolutely be the best us's that we can be. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Today is Monday. Can you believe like the time is going so fast? I'm super happy because uh, today is my grandmother's birthday. She turned 88 years old today. So my family and I, we're going to go to her house and surprise her and bring her some cake and balloons and bring her a birthday party. So I think she's going to dig that. Um, What else is going on in my life? Oh, well, a lot of good things professionally. A lot of good things are happening from a professional standpoint. So I'm pretty excited about that, very, very excited about that. Um, Oh, listen, pray for Pastor Montan's uh, wife. Let me just read to you the email that he sent me right before I went on the air. It says, pray for Connie and her mom. The spot on her lung and brain has been found cancerous. They said it's inoperable. I'm believing God for what man can't do. So um, just, you know, say a prayer for um, Pastor Montan's wife and her mom. Um, You know, whether you believe in the power of prayer or not, I do. Uh, So I just think, you know, if we all come together and collectively send out our energy, you know what? God can do amazingly and abundantly more things than we can ever imagine or ask. And I tell you, I know this is so true because it's happened in my life on, on many fronts. So there's a lot of times where I'm wondering how in the world am I going to get out of this or how is this going to happen? And you know something? God just does the coolest things and just makes wonderful things happen. So just all come together and 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 send out a good word and a good prayer for Pastor Montan's wife and her mom. On that note, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash life remix. I would love to have you follow my tweets. Don't forget to follow my blog, www.cybrown.com. I welcome the opportunity to have you read and comment. I just posted a video from YouTube on how people can track your cell phone conversations uh, without unbeknownst to you. So uh, check that out. It's it's I, I put it on my blog today because that's some deep and heavy stuff. So check that out. And uh, on that note, we're going to get into today's lesson. Today's lesson is about power negotiating, just really how to negotiate from a position of strength, how to set yourself up for the best possible outcome, just doing a lot of homework, and, um, you know, it's, it's a good lesson. The stuff that I share with you on this show is, is, is are lessons that I've actually listened to and I think can really be beneficial to you in your, in your, in your walk for personal and professional development. Big shout-out to Curvy Queen. I see her listening in on the line. Hello, my darling. Um, I'm not talking. I'm getting ready to stop talking in a second, and we're going to listen to a very short 20-minute lesson on on power negotiating. And this can really help you for everybody that's looking for a job right now or, 
you know, just wants to be able to have a stronger command of their over their life. So on that note, let's get right into today's short 20-minute lesson. I'll be back right on the other side to wrap it up, and I will keep our day going. Thank you so much for listening to Life Remix Radio. It is absolutely my pleasure to have you join me every single day at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for listening because it means a lot to me. So on that note, let's jump right into today's lesson. In this session, we'll be talking about the three stages of every negotiation and also the ingredients that make you a good negotiator. The three stages may not be apparent to you. In this country, we have a real desire to get to the bottom line, don't we? You know, Americans are probably the best salespeople in the entire world. When you're at New Delhi Airport, for example, which is the crossroads airport of the entire Asian continent, and you stand there and you see this long line of Boeing 747 airplanes coming down the runway, you know that Americans have to be the greatest airplane salespeople in the world. When you're in a country like Singapore and you see the entire budget of the nation being run on IBM computers, you know that American salespeople have to be the best computer salespeople in the world. And understand that Caterpillar tractors are used all over the world, even in Russia, for road building. So you know that we have to be the best equipment salespeople in the world. So we're good at what we do in negotiating business contracts. This was really highlighted to me recently when I took a tour of the United Nations building in New York. When the United Nations was established, it was agreed that the member nations would support the cost of the United Nations organization in relationship to their gross national product and their population. And a very wide range was established of support. But you know, we have one failing, and that is that we want to go to the bottom line too quickly. I really became aware of this when, as a real estate broker in California, president of one of the largest companies in California, we did a lot of business with Iranians. At the time of the fall of the Shah of Iran, it was not uncommon to find Iranians coming into this country with a million dollars in cash that they would invest in American real estate. And very often I would see our salespeople making gross errors of negotiation with these Iranians because they would take the typical American attitude that, well, let's get the business settled and we'll go out for a beer afterwards, whereas Iranians were taking a totally different approach. They knew that there were set stages that you need to go through in every negotiation. And it was appropriate to sit down and have some tea together and get to know each other well for maybe several hours before the topic of business would even be raised. So if we will learn these three stages of every negotiation and learn to work with them, we'll become much more effective. So let's learn these three stages of every negotiation now. This is something that Mayor Wilson Good of Philadelphia could really have benefited from. In May of 1985, he was called into a terrorist situation on Osage Avenue in Philadelphia. An upshot of the negotiations were that 53 homes were destroyed, 250 people were left homeless, and the 11 terrorists were left dead. This situation was of a special interest to me because not long before that, I had been hired by the mayors of California to teach them how to negotiate this kind of situation. There are 442 cities in California, and the mayors held a big conference in Monterey, California, and hired me to come and teach them how to negotiate. So I taught them that there are three stages of every negotiation. 
And I think the way that I explained it to them in terms of a terrorist situation will make it readily apparent to you what those three stages are and how you can apply them to any other negotiation. Let's suppose, I said to them, that you are the mayor of a small California city and you've been called in to a terrorist situation downtown. There's a gunman holding a gun on a hostage in one of the buildings down there. Your police chief is a little to the right of Genghis Khan. He's in favor of blowing the whole place apart and killing everybody inside. And you'd like to avoid that. Somebody hands you a bullhorn and says, okay, negotiate our way out of this. One of the mayors called out. He said, wait a minute, I only got elected by 47 votes. But in that situation, it would be fairly obvious what your first stage should be. Your first stage would be to establish criteria. Find out exactly what the other side wants to do. Even when you're fairly sure that you won't like what you're about to hear. Find out exactly what it is they want. In the terrorist situation, it might be five minutes on a local radio station. It might be a one-way ticket to Cuba. It might just be something that you can give them. Sometimes you're surprised when you narrow it down to find out exactly what it is that they want. I remember a situation many, many years ago when a large department store chain asked me to negotiate a situation where a couple had bought a Franklin stove through their catalog department, had installed the stove, and it had malfunctioned, blackening the entire outside of their house and pouring hot coals under their living room carpet and burning a hole in the middle of it. This appeared to be such a major problem to this company that the complaint had gone through all the stages, from salesperson to store manager, store manager to district manager, district manager to regional manager. The regional vice president in charge of the seven western states now had this problem on his desk. In an attempt to negotiate this to avoid it going on to the head office in Chicago, he asked me to go and see what it could be done, to take pictures of the damage to assess an appropriate settlement. I went out there to this uh, little home out in the country and met with the owners of this home with two of the most charming elderly people I have ever met. I quickly ascertained that it was indeed the fault of the stove and not the way that they installed it. They showed me the blackened outside of the house. They showed me the hole in the living room carpet. And the first thing I did was to establish criteria, to try and find out exactly what it was they wanted to do. I assumed it was a question that had been asked them a dozen times before as this complaint had worked its way up through the levels of authority in the company. But to my amazement, when I said to them, well, what exactly is it you feel the company should do for you? They said, well, we can probably take care of the smoke on the outside of the house. We have plenty of time. We can clean that up. But we are concerned about the hole in the living room carpet. Well, what I repeated, do you feel the company should do about that? Well, we wouldn't expect you to buy a whole new carpet, they said. Uh, maybe if we had a scatter rug that we could put over the hole, that would be all right. I could hardly believe what I was hearing. I said, you mean to tell me that if we gave you a scatter rug to put over the hole, you'd be happy? Oh, yes, that would be fine, they said. So I put them in the car, drove them down to the local branch of the store, had them pick out a scatter rug, which was, I think, less than $50 at retail price, much less cost, had them sign a complete release, and send it in to the regional vice president of this company. And I got a letter back congratulating me on a masterful job of negotiating, which was nonsense. I was just the first person who had asked them exactly what they want to do. So that's always the first stage in any negotiation. In the terrorist situation, we ask them exactly what they expect us to do. Secondly, we create our criteria in their minds. We tell them exactly what we are prepared to do to ascertain how far we might be apart in the negotiations. 
Having established criteria so that each side understands exactly what the other side is initially willing to do, then we go to stage two, which is to get information. This is one of the most critical parts of any negotiating process, is to find out exactly all you can about the other side. We'll see in session seven how information is one of the critical elements of power. We'll see in session eight that is one of the three critical elements that always affects the outcome of negotiation. But here we see it's the second stage of every negotiation. Find out all you possibly can. Don't jump to conclusions at this stage. Ask for information. In the case of the terrorist situation, we'd want to know, is this person a member of an organized group? Have they ever followed through on this threat before? What religion are they? Is it a minister or a priest that we can call in? Where is their family? Who can we bring in to help us with the situation? But get all the information you possibly can. As an employer, you may have a key employee who's about to quit. You would still go through these three stages. Number one, establish exactly what they intend and plan to do. What exactly would it take for them to stay with the company? Find out, even if you may not like what you're going to hear. And the second stage, get all the information you possibly can. And the more you probe for information, the more your things will come to the surface that affect the negotiations that you otherwise would not be aware of. This employee may be having marital problems that seem to demand to him that she should leave town. And really, the dissatisfaction with the job is not the key issue at all. Getting more information is critical to you, and it's the second stage of every negotiation. Only when you've completed these two stages do you then go to stage three, which is to reach for compromise. To start looking for things that they might see of value that you're willing to concede in the negotiation because they're not necessarily of value to you, and vice versa. Follow those three stages of negotiation. Practice in little areas, too. For example, my son used to come to me and say, Dad, could I borrow the car tonight? And I might immediately jump to the defensive. Without going through the stages, I'll say, No, son, I don't want you borrowing the car tonight. Uh, we can't have you borrowing the car every night. You've got homework to do and so on and so forth. If I'd have gone through the three stages, I would have said, Establish criteria, number one. Find out where he's going with the car, how long he's going to be, when will he be coming back. And then go to stage number two. Get all the information you possibly can. Who's he going to be with? If he's going to a movie, what movie is he going to see? And so on. And then three, reach for some kind of compromise that's acceptable to both of you. Such as, if you do your homework first, I'll let you go. Or possibly tomorrow night I'll let you go to the movie and I'll come with you. But before I went through the three stages, I would jump to a conclusion, a big argument would start, and then I would find out that he'd been asked by his mother to go down to the drugstore and pick up a prescription for her and the relationship would have been seriously weakened. What does it take to become a good negotiator? There are five things that I'd like to stress here. Number one, the understanding that negotiating is always a two-way affair. The pressure is always on the other person to compromise in the negotiations just as much as it is on you. For example, when you're walking into a bank to apply for a loan, you tend to get very intimidated. You tend to look at that big bank and you start thinking, why on earth would a big bank like this want to lend little old me money? And we immediately lose sight of the pressure that's on the other side. That this bank spends millions of dollars a year in advertising to try and entice us to come in for a loan. The many, many people who work there, their jobs are entirely dependent on the loan activity. So a good negotiator learns to mentally compensate for the fact that we always think we have the weaker side in the negotiations. And as he strides up to that loan officer's desk, 
He thinks to himself, I bet this loan officer just got a royal chewing out from his boss who told him, if you can't find somebody to lend money to today, we don't even need you around here anymore. One of the things that I recommend you do after taking this course is to go apply for an increase in pay. They've been underpaying you for years, and you didn't understand it. And maybe a lack of negotiating caused you not to be able to get what you really deserve. Now, you'll be sitting there with your boss negotiating an increase in pay, and you'll automatically start thinking that you've got the weaker hand, that they don't need to compromise as badly as you do. You'll be thinking, boy, I hope this doesn't affect my career plan with this company. They've really been good to me over the years. Maybe I shouldn't push so hard. Do you know what your employer is sitting there thinking? They're thinking, I hope I don't lose them over this. They have done so well for us in all these years. They're so skilled at what they're doing. I have no idea why I'd ever find a replacement for them. You're both sitting there thinking that you have the weaker hand in the negotiation. And good negotiators learn to mentally compensate for that. Point number two that makes you a good negotiator is the desire to acquire the skills of negotiating. The understanding that negotiating isn't just for union negotiators and FBI agents and prison wardens. Everybody's negotiating all the time. And the desire to acquire the skills comes from the understanding of how effective this knowledge that we're teaching you now and the tactics that we'll be teaching you in sessions three and four and the personality styles and the power factors, how effective these can be when you're dealing with other people. Try them out. See how effective they are. Number three, the understanding of how these different principles work and how the gambits that we'll cover in session three and four affect the negotiations. Number four is a willingness to practice. One of the fascinating things about learning how to negotiate is that you don't have to wait until you're in a heavy negotiating situation with thousands of dollars on the table before you work with these skills. Learn to practice in little areas, too. For example, I was recently hired to do a seminar in Atlanta at John Portman's Peachtree Hotel. It's a western hotel. It's a fabulous place. It's the tallest hotel in the country and possibly in the world, I think. It's 70 stories high. It's like a round, tall tower. There are only about 20 rooms on each floor. As I walked into the hotel, a room had been prearranged for me by the organization that had hired me, I was wondering what could I do to provide an illustration to the people who will be in the seminar tomorrow of how effective negotiating can be. And what I determined to do was see what I could do about negotiating down the price of the room. Now, rooms at the Petrie typically cost $135. And they had placed me in at a very good corporate rate, $75. But nevertheless, I determined to see what I could do. Ten minutes later, they had reduced the price of that room to $37.50 for me. I'd used the classic trade-off movement on them. They told me that they only had a twin-size room for me. Now, if they'd have said they only had a full-size room, I would have asked for a twin bed, you understand. It didn't matter what it was. But I said, I'm sorry, I... This room was booked a month ahead of time for me. I'm just not going to accept a twin-size room. The manager was bought out. He explained that they have 1,400 rooms in the hotel. 1,390 of them are already occupied. They only had 10 available, and I would have to settle for a twin-size room. So I used the trade-off technique. I said, well, I might be willing to settle for a twin-size room, but if I do that for you, what will you do for me? I thought possibly they might offer me a free breakfast or something like that. But to my amazement, he said, well, we might be able to adjust the price of the room a little bit. 
how would half price be for you? And I said, that would be just fine. The interesting thing was that before they gave me the key to the room, they said, let me check just a moment. We may be able to do something more for you. And they made a telephone call, and they found out that they did indeed have a queen-size room available for me that had just been newly redecorated, and they were not sure whether it was being released yet for use. So I ended up getting a queen-size room, a $135 room, for only $37.50. This didn't benefit me, since the organization was paying for it, and they got the benefit of the reduction anyway. But the point is here that in little areas like this, you can learn to use these gambits to see how effective they can be. And that will be very, very useful for you when you get into large negotiations. In another instance recently, I was completing a seminar in Kansas City and flying back through Dallas to California. And another speaker at the seminar found that he was on the same flight as me and suggested we travel together. Well, in the taxi to the airport, I found out that I was traveling on a first-class ticket and he had a coach ticket. So I determined to see if I could get him upgraded to first class at no extra charge. Well, it took me 10 or 15 minutes to do it, which probably wasn't a particularly valuable investment of my time. But the thing is to get some practice in areas like this. I asked the young lady at the counter, and I told him I'd just run into this friend of mine, and I had a first class ticket. Would they be nice enough to give him a courtesy upgrade? She said that she couldn't do it, uh, but that I should check with the gate agent and see if he could do it. So we talked to the gate agent. He said, no, there was absolutely no way that the company would let him do that. I said, well, what if I talk to the stewardess on the airplane? He said, well, I guess you could talk to her if you wanted to. So I got onto the plane. and I told the same story over again. I just met this person. I had a first class. He had a coach. Would she be willing to look the other way? Well, she said, well, I don't have the authority, but I'll check back with the gate agent, the person I'd previously spoken to. I invited my friend to sit next to me in first class while she went to check. She came back and she said, that'll be fine, you're welcome to do that. The interesting thing was that in both of these negotiations, the other people were not hostile to the negotiation. They were happy to do this. They were happy to make that concession. In fact, when my friend left the plane in Dallas, the stewardess pressed two little bottles of Chevis Regal into his hand and said, please take these with our compliments. So that's one of the benchmarks of a good negotiation that we'll talk about in session 12, that you haven't completed a good negotiation if the other person resents what you accomplished. They must feel good about what was done. The fifth thing that makes you a win-win negotiator is the desire to create win-win solutions. After you've studied this course thoroughly and applied the techniques, you'll develop a power over people, a feeling of control in formally threatening situations that'll benefit you for a lifetime. Then it's up to you not to abuse that power but only to use it when both people can benefit. In session three, we'll talk about the specific negotiating gambits that make negotiating such a fascinating art. Thank you so much for listening. I see Sandy in the chat room. She's like, yes, 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 this guy is great. Um, a lot of stuff that he's talking about is really just... Uh, <clears throat> God in action, and the core of this show is really God, is living God, walking God, breathing God, and I, I think that what puts us in, <clears throat> excuse me, a beautiful place is that when we can see the God and when we can see the Christ in other people, we think, oh, wow, you know, this guy has all these wonderful things. 
when you walk with the Lord and your life is right and your heart is right, doors are going to open to you regardless. You don't need any magical power of negotiating and, and uh, you know, ten steps to this. All you need to know is you're living a right life, and when you walk a right life, everything is going to line up for you anyway. Everything, the doors are going to open. Uh, people are going to be more, they're going to trip over helping you. As we start to wind down today's show, I did say at the top of the show that please keep Pastor Monton McDonald's wife and his mother-in-law in prayer. I received an email at the top of the show right before I was getting ready to go on the air, which is like, whoa, to get it right before you go on the air, um, that there was a tumor on um, Connie, is his wife, on the spot on her lung and brain has been found cancerous, and they said it's inoperable. And he says, I'm believing God for what man can't do. So please, I ask you to just muster enough faith to just send out a little love and send out a little prayer for Pastor Montan's family because we all want everybody's family, especially those that listen to this show every day, to be healthy and empowered and encouraged. What's the sense of tuning in to listen to me every day if you're not being encouraged? And in your time of need, we're not there to encourage you. Because God knows you guys have encouraged me through a whole lot of mess. You all have encouraged me through times when I just thought it was so dark and couldn't make it through as recently as just a few months ago. So uh, the least I can do is is offer encouragement back to, to my listeners and my listeners' families as well. Very quickly, just a quick programming note, tune in to Sandy's show. She's How Elegant in the chat room. Her show is Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sandy, make sure I'm giving the right time, sweetheart. Make sure I'm not telling everybody the wrong information. It's blog talk radio forward slash how elegant. Also, True uh, has a relationship show that airs Thursday nights at 8 o'clock on blog talk. Tiffany Janae has the Hip Hop Entrepreneurs radio show that airs Wednesday nights at 11 o'clock. Pastor Bon Tom McDonald has a show. He has a Bible study. He's actually my unofficial pastor, so I listen to his show Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time for two hours. So please support other um, independent radio stations and other independent radio shows um, so, you know, you can get blessed and you can benefit as well. On that note, you know what tomorrow is. We talk politics for the full show. And always remember that we shall pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, that we can do or any kindness that we can show to any human being, let us do it now. Let us not defer or neglect it, for we shall not pass this way again. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to Life Remix Radio. We are here every single day at 12 noon Eastern. Well, not every single day. Not Saturdays and Sundays, y'all. But uh, weekdays at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. And I bring you tips and solutions in every sense of the word to live our best life ever. I love you all. Thank you so much for your time that you took to listen to me today. And I'll see you tomorrow at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time where we talk politics for the full show. It's your girl, Cy Brown, checking in for LifeRemixRadio.com, and I'll see you soon. 